open in a word of prayer. Father, again, we uh, give you thanks for the opportunity to um, share about um, your kingdom and how to be effective witnesses for Christ. Um, we thank you, Lord, for the revelation in the scriptures that you've given us. We realize, Lord, that uh, you use the creativity and the minds of the biblical authors, and um, we realize that uh, the scriptures have come to us in a, a variety of different genres, uh, communicating your truth, and so we want to give you thanks, Lord, uh, for allowing us the opportunity this morning to uh, take a look at that and see how the ways in which truth was communicated through your word, and so we ask that you bless our time in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, what I'm going to talk about today is basically the, the scriptures that have come to us have come to us in a number of different genres. And so genres of literature, um, people say, communicate things different ways. So if I were to, if I were to tell you um, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a bar, what, 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 do, you, what do you expect after I say that? I mean, if I just say, hey, you know, priest, a rabbi, and a minister, they walk into a bar one day. What, what are you expecting? Joke. Okay. I mean, that's a joke, right? Okay. Uh, so if I suppose I say to you, uh, once upon a time, what are you expecting? Fairy tale? Story? How about, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Wedding? Uh, the party of the first part agrees to pay the party of the second part. Legal attorney, right? Um, how about this one? You don't want to hear this. You have the right to remain silent, right? So, <laughs> so, uh, so each of those verbal clues, uh, each, each of those sayings kind of gave you a clue as to the type of thing that, was, that I was going to talk about. Um, so in each of those words, right, it's constructed in such a manner that it, it gives us kind of hints and cues as to the nature of the communication is what I'm saying. And so automatically we kind of prepare a mental framework of, of, to interpret what's about to be said. So now if I tell you, you know, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a bar and immediately you say, wait a minute, those guys aren't supposed to be in a bar. I mean, you kind of miss something. Right? I mean, you, you really <laughs> haven't caught on to the, to the clues. So let me ask you this. You walk into a restaurant, and uh, you order, you know, you want to order, so the waitress or the host, the, the waiter comes to you and uh, gives you a menu. H how do you read that menu? I mean, do you start off with the dessert section? Maybe, right? But, um, I mean, there's no real rhyme or reason how you go through a menu, right? Suppose you board a flight, and uh, you have your carry-on suitcase, and you go down the aisle to your seat, you put the carry-on uh, on top of the luggage rack, you sit down, you bucket yourself in, and you pull out a novel. It's a novel, suspense novel that you've been wanting to read for the longest time. Would you read that novel like a menu? No, right? I mean, would you um, You'd read it from you'd start from the beginning and read towards the end, right? Because if you started in the middle, you'd be lost. Uh, how about a newspaper? 
You know, one of the first things I used to read when I had the news when we did have newspapers, <laughs> if you can find them now, uh, I used to go straight to the comics section, read the comics, then go to the sports. So you're kind of all over the place. So the idea is that uh, with different types of literature, I mean, there's certain the different kind of rules uh, for reading it. So you wouldn't read a novel like you'd read a newspaper, and and so on and so forth. For many many years, uh, because of um, in, in the literary world, we, and when I say we, we Bible scholars would read the scriptures uh, in light of a kind of a Hellenistic, uh, a Greek Hellenistic mindset. And so when Alexander the Great, you know, swept through the world conquering and he established uh, Hellenism, the, the, uh, for the most part, the way in which people interpreted writings was basically through a Greek Hellenistic context. Uh, Greek writing is very, um, uh, you know, logical and, and linear and so on and so forth. And so some years ago, as they began to read and study the scriptures, there were certain uh, Bible scholars that were influenced by um, some German philosophies. And reading the scriptures in that context they realized, uh, wait a minute, there's some strange things going on here. And so they read Genesis, and in the first chapter of Genesis, the scriptures would identify God as uh, Elohim, right? And then in another chapter, Yahweh. And so they began to think, wait a minute, there's, there's something wrong here. You know, how is it that uh, the author is writing, uh, referring to God as Elohim, and over here he's uh, referring to him as Yahweh. And so uh, it has to be the case that there's uh, different writers. And out of that grew what's called the documentary hypothesis, which Jeremy, right, being a seminary, is probably familiar with. And so they began to doubt that the Pentateuch, the first five books of Genesis, was written by one single author. And then as that uh, theory developed, they began to think, well, uh, we have some other things in, in, in the literature, and it, so it couldn't be the case that, uh, that we have two authors. We probably had more authors, and, and maybe this uh, part of the Pentateuch was written at a lot later date, uh, than, and, and Moses couldn't have been the author because uh, there's some things that are written um, after his death. And so within the last 20 or 25 years, uh, through archaeology and research, they began to discover that the um, Semitic authors uh, wrote very differently than Greek authors, you know, Hellenistic writings. And, and, and so scholars began to read the scriptures in light of uh, research and archaeology that they discovered in Mesopotamia and other Semitic writers you know, during that time. And they realized that wow, there's different ways that these authors have composed the scriptures. And so I just want to talk about uh, some, of those, some of those ways. We certainly don't have time to go through all of them, but uh, the different literary genres that we find in the scriptures, um, number one, we have poetry. We have Hebrew poetry, uh, which is a lot different from the poetry that we're used to. You know, roses are red, violets are blue. Now, obviously, some poets would probably take offense at that because not all poetry is, is uh, you know, rhymes. But uh, Semitic uh, poetry is very different. Uh, 
than ours. And, and a big part of the scriptures, what, what, what would you think is, well, let me just tell you, the uh, narrative or story. I mean, uh, the bulk of the scriptures is uh, based on narrative genre. We have wisdom literature, you know, Proverbs and Song of Solomon. We have apocalyptic literature. Uh, we have gospel, the epistle, you know, which are very didactic and logical. And, and Paul gives a lot of his arguments uh, in the epistles. We have law, prophecy, the Psalms, uh, parables. And obviously we have uh, history. And so when I, one of the things that uh, when we come to the text, and in my last talk I talked about presuppositions, and Alex mentioned that, but we, we, we work with some common presuppositions when we come to the text. So when we open up the scriptures, we realize that it's a divine revelation from God, and God used human authors to communicate that. So when we read a story like, when we read narratives, when we read stories in the scriptures, they're not stories for story's sake. I mean, we like to... You know, when my kids were young, uh, we would, you know, read them Bible stories, David and Goliath and Esther, and in fact, we had, uh, we had Jewish neighbors, and we had a great relationship with them. We still do till today, and I'm t- going back, we bought the house. My son was born in 94, but we used to read all of the Bible stories to my son, and then when the, the gal next door was a teenager, when she would come babysit my son, he would ask her questions. And they weren't practicing Jews, but, um, you know, one day was, I think they were celebrating Purim. And so I asked uh, this young gal, Jessica, I said, do you uh, know what Purim is about? And she says, no, I don't. So I said, Jeremy, I said, uh, do you know anything about Queen Esther? And he says, yeah. And then he went and proceeded to, you know, tell her the story on Queen Esther. So, but... So we, we, we share the stories with the kids, but they're just not stories. I mean, there's, there's a purpose in, uh, in what was communicated through the scriptures. So, another, so we, we also believe that the Bible is in, in, it's inerrant, right? It's without error uh, in the original autographs. Um, we certainly don't assume that the translations that we have uh, are, are inerrant and without error. Um, and... While the Bible is not a scientific book, it does speak about matters of science, and it's without error. So there are certain, just as uh, we have certain, just, just as I mentioned, you know, we read a newspaper differently than we read a novel, there, there are certain rules about reading some of the genres that we have in the scriptures. Now, one of the major arguments that Jehovah Witnesses have about the person of Jesus Christ is, uh, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was a created being. They believe he was the Archangel Michael. And what they do is they basically have like a lot of proof texts. And one of the things that they, and, and this, does anybody have a Bible? I mean, this, I have a pew Bible and these letters are, <laughs> I think yeah, I need yeah, a magnifying. Would you mind if I just, uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, I just want to read from Proverbs. Proverbs is uh, wisdom literature, and you know Proverbs is, you know, it opens up that, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what the Jehovah Witnesses have done is they've taken this genre and they've kind of created a doctrine on the person of Jesus Christ. 
So Proverbs 8.22, they say this is how they argue that Jesus is a created being. Proverbs 8.22 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no foundations abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he made, while, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. So Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, well, there we go. Jesus was a created being. He says that the Lord possessed him at the beginning of his way, before the, the works of old, he was established from everlasting. So, you know, there it is in black and white. Jesus was created. And so you have an illicit interpretation of this particular genre making a major uh, doctrine. Now, if that's the case, then you'd have to ask several questions. Um, if you look at the beginning uh, of, uh, of that chapter, you realize that wisdom is described in feminine terms, right? I mean, she cries out. So where in the scriptures did it ever, does it ever refer to Jesus as a she? So, you know, right away, that should raise a red flag. Um, another thing is it talks about uh, that Wisdom dwelt with, uh, where was it? So I have everything marked off in my Bible, but. Um, okay, I wisdom dwell with prudence. All right, so if Jesus Christ is wisdom, then who, who is prudence, <laughs> right? Um, so the, these, uh, you know, these uh, building doctrines out of uh, certain genres of the scriptures like you know, narrative is just an illicit understanding of it. Now, one of the things that uh, the biblical authors didn't have, they didn't have uh, the advantage of when, Jer when, when Pastor Jeremy is preaching on Sunday morning, if he wants to uh, emphasize a particular point in his sermon, he can raise his voice, he can lower his voice, he can pause. Um, if he's like some Pentecostal preachers, he can you know, slam the pulpit and run around. But, uh, but you can, under, we, we, get, we get verbal, right? Um, it says nonverbal, I mean, nonverbal communication is like 75% of communication, right? So a big part is the inflections, the tones, and so on and so forth. Now, the biblical authors, they, didn't, they, they don't have that uh, advantage. And so they had to employ certain literary devices 
to either highlight what they wanted to or uh, to emphasize a particular point. And so one of the things that uh, Bible scholars and some of the archaeologists discovered uh, that there are certain literary devices that are very unique to um, Semitic authors that were not employed by authors uh, using a, a Hellenistic frame, framework. Now, one of those devices, I just want to talk about a few of those, and then I just want to talk about narrative uh, in the remaining time. But one of, one of the devices is called an inclusio. Inclusio, I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. Inclusio, basically like bookends. And so an inclusio is a literary device where the writer um, takes a theme or an idea and he establishes it at both the beginning and the end of a particular section that he wants to emphasize. It's in, so it's intended to introduce and to conclude uh, a certain point that the, that the author is, is making. So everything in between uh, is to be read with this inclusio in mind. So let me, let me give you an example. Um, in the Old Testament... In Genesis 12, 10, uh, there's a, you recall there's a story of a, uh, Abram and Sarai. And so there's a, there's a famine in the land. And so they, um, they go to Egypt, and what does Abram do? R- recall? He, right, he lies. He says, Sarai is, is my sister. So you have that story. And then in Genesis 20, you have almost the same exact Circumstances, right? When he goes before uh, Abimelech and he and he lies to Abimelech and he tells him again that Sarai is his. So, you, so you have these two uh, almost almost similar events, but in between you have this whole narrative of Lot. You have the the Lot narratives, and so that's kind of an example of an inclusio. Uh, in the New Testament, what's pretty interesting is that each of the books, each of the gospel books begin and end with an inclusio. In Matthew, uh, the theme of Matthew is basically that God is present with us in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Emmanuel. And so in Matthew 1.18, um, he talks about this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And then verses 22 to 23, he says, uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you turn to the very end of the book, in chapter 28, 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded to you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so Matthew, whose emphasis is that God is present with us in the person of Jesus Christ, opens up his gospel with the idea of Emmanuel is with us and closes his gospel with Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In Mark, his uh, emphasis in terms of the identity of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And one, in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the close of his book, 1539, 
And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So then again, you have this theme that he is, uh, he, he's introducing you to his, the thrust of his book, that Jesus Christ, you know, the son of God, and he mentions that in both the beginning and the end. In Luke, the inclusio theme is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills what was promised in the Old Testament. He writes in uh, Luke 1, first four verses, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So initially, that first sentence is, these things have been fulfilled among us. The very end of the book, in 24, verses 44 to 47, he says, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they can understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance, forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. How about John? The inclusio theme, anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus will receive eternal life. Um, the word believed is, I think, around 38, 38 times or so throughout the whole book of John. But John 1.12, he opens up, yet to all who received them, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Then at the very end of the book, chapter 20, verse 30, 31, says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And so an inclusio is an effective tool that biblical writers use to introduce an idea or word picture at the beginning and then uh, wrapping it up. Another uh, literary device that, that the biblical authors use are called chiasms. Chiasm. Now, chiasm uh, is a, a, a rhetorical device, right? And it comes from the Greek, uh, Greek letter key, which is like, almost like a backwards K, and so you have this line this way and then this way. So I wish I had a board to, uh, to write. Um, but a, a chiasm is, is a, it's a, parable, a parallel structure so that if you compare uh, A, well, let me just give you an example with, it, with, it, with, with a chiasm. Chiasms. But many who are first will be last, all right? So many who are first will be last, and the last, whoop, and the last will be first. So you got that? So uh, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So we've got A, B, B, A. Mark 2.27 says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, those are, those are simple chiasms. Um, some Bible scholars have detected it in whole books. 
Uh, they can get a little more cl- complex. And again, I wish I had a board. But First, first John 3, 9, no one, no one born of God, that's one line, makes a practice of sinning. And then for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If I had a board, you, you know, you'd be able to see it visually. But sometimes in chiasms, the way they work out is that the middle line, you know, is, is really the kind of the punchline of what, of what the biblical writer wants to emphasize. And so you have this development of thought, the punchline, and then it, the parallel uh, goes back. John uh, 1, verses 1 to 18, uh, you have the Word with God the Father. Um, then you have the the, the world's the role in the word's role in creation, God's grace to mankind. You have the witness of John the Baptist, the incarnation, and then saving faith right in the middle, saving faith in the incarnate word. And then you have the incarnation of the word, the witness of John the Baptist, again, uh, God's grace to mankind, and the the word's role in recreation. And the word with the Father God. That's in the first 18 verses of, uh, of, of the first chapter. Now, you also have uh, historical settings in the scriptures, uh, which you have what's uh, certain typologies. Typologies is when you have uh, certain events that um, uh, occur throughout the scriptures. And so we have in the fourth chapter of John, we have Jesus meeting the, the, the woman at the well, okay? So, so Jesus, you recall, says, you know, I must go through uh, Samaria, okay? So he has this, this divine appointment, and he meets this woman at the well. Disciples decide they're going to go off to Chick-fil-A, so they leave him there together, and um, Jesus progressively, as he's sharing, as he's sharing with this woman, you know, she begins to see who he is. You know, first he's a Jew, and then, you know, she calls him sir. And then as he, you know, he begins to tell her about her life, you know, now, you know, that the light bulb goes on. And uh, she realizes, wow, this, you know, this guy's he's the Messiah. So what does she do? So she runs off, um, and, you know, disciples come back. And then, remember, Jesus says, you know, about the fields and the harvest, right, being plentiful, and all the people come out. And so you have this uh, a kind of a spiritual picture of a marriage, right, of a wedding. I mean, we, we are, as a church, we're the bride of Christ. And so you have all of this taking place at the well. But when you look through the Old Testament, there are other incidences of a kind of a, a meeting place at the well with marriages. You have Isaac, uh, Genesis 24. Who does Isaac meet at the well? You recall, he meets his wife, Rebecca. Well, eventually she, she's his wife. And so you have this, this meeting place at the well, and Rebecca and Isaac are married. Later on in Genesis 29, you have Jacob. Who did Jacob meet at the well? He met his wife, Rachel. And then in Genesis 2.15, who, who did Moses meet at the well? He met, he met his wife, Zipporah, right? Remember that? And so there's, throughout the scriptures, um, there's these uh, these these incidences in the historical settings that when you see them over and over, you know, they begin to communicate. And so you have the idea of this wedding, this marriage, 
uh, where the initial meeting takes place, and then all the way you carry over into the New Testament, and you have Jesus meeting this woman, the Samaritan woman, and there's a, you know, a marriage of sorts that takes place when she recognizes that he is, in fact, the Messiah. You have um, another, another literary device is called uh, stitching. And let me just, I just have, let me just read really quick from John, John chapter 2. And stitching is just that, you know, when you, when you think about stitching two pieces of cloth together, kind of tying them together. So we have the story of uh, Nicodemus. And so in, in uh, prior to that, I'm sorry, prior to that, you have Jesus. John 2.23, he says, Now, when he, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And it says that, verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself to them. He did not commit himself to the people who believed because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Okay? The very next verse, what, how does it open up? In 3.1. There was a man of a Pharisee's name, Nicodemus. And Jesus has this interaction with, with a Pharisee who is questioning Jesus about being born again. And Jesus is like, wait, you're a Pharisee. You should know this. But you don't. So... You have, in the end of the chapter, Jesus talking about him not trusting man, and then you have uh, the very next illustration is Nicodemus, the kind of man that Jesus cannot trust. So that, that, that initial word there, uh, where it ends with, for he knew what was in man, and then the very next verse, there was a man. And so that's called, that's called stitching. Now, again, like I mentioned, the scriptures are uh, largely uh, narratives. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of, of what the scriptures were written. And so one of the things that we understand from, uh, from narratives is that narratives, uh, they also, they, narratives convey um, biblical truth. And so you have Paul who writes didactically. Uh, he writes, you know, very logical arguments in the scriptures. But when we read the narratives, we, we can get just as much theology out of narratives as we can in any of the, the epistles. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we read narratives is that uh, there's, there's a book written by Gordon Fee called um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I mean, it's a really good book, and he deals... I would, I would encourage you to, you can, get, you can actually find that book online for free. If you type in, um, it, it's, if you type that title in by Gordon Fee, and I can get that for you later, you can find a PDF copy of that, and you can just download it for free. But one of the things that he talks about, which is interesting, he says that in the narratives, that you, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that, that there are basically three levels of, of narrative scriptures that we need to 
uh, be aware of. He says the top level is kind of that whole universal plan of God. And so you have you know, the big major narratives, uh, the creation story, uh, the creation of man, sin, uh, the whole uh, redemptive plan uh, through, uh, through Christ's coming and the cross. And so uh, it deals with all of those big, uh, big redemptive uh, narratives and the history. Then you have the middle level, which kind of senses around Israel. And so at this level, you see basically the call of Abraham. You see Abraham's uh, lineage and, you know, through then the, uh, the lives of the patriarchs. You see Israel being enslaved in Egypt. Then you see God uh, intervening and Moses delivering, through Moses delivering the, Israel, uh, the Israelites from bondage into the promised land. Um, you see the whole cycle of Israel's constant uh, rebellion and God's judgment and their repentance and their restoration. And so you see all of this that takes place um, and, there, and then eventually Israel being taken into exile. So uh, we, you know, we know that the Messiah came through Israel and so that's kind of like the middle, the middle level. And then at the bottom level, uh, of the redemptive story. That's where we find all of these hundreds of stories of individuals, you know, people like Joseph and um, Gideon and David and, and Bathsheba. And so, but each of these, each of these level, you know, so the bottom is, 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 you know, the individuals are related to the story of Israel, which the Messiah came. I mean, God's redemptive plan of, of salvation came through Israel and that is related to the larger plan uh, of, of God and, uh, and restoring creation you know, and, and humanity to himself. Now, there's an interesting story in Genesis 37. So you have the story of Joseph. You're all familiar with that. And so you have kind of this bottom-level story of the individual Joseph and his brothers, and you recall Joseph, you know, he's a brat, right? He has 11 brothers. He's his father's favorite. His father makes him a robe of many colors. In Genesis 37, 4, it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peace, peacefully to him. And so you recall, you know, Joseph has this dream and at some point in the future, this dream is that his brothers are going to bow down and uh, bow down before him. And, of course, that just drives his brothers through the roof. So it says that his brothers hated him even more. So you recall the story. His brothers are out in the pasture with the flock. And Joseph's uh, father, Jacob, sends Joseph out to find his brothers. And verse 15 in chapter 37 talks about Joseph searching in an area that he thinks that his brothers are, and they're not there. And it says that a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers. And he says, tell me, please, where they are, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So here you have Joseph looking for his brothers in Shechem, but he can't find them. So this stranger 
happens to come along, and I say happens in scare quotes. I think these are called scare quotes. He happens to come along, and he tells him, hey, your brothers are in Dothan, which is 30 miles, 25, 30 miles north of, of where, he, where he was in Shechem. So Joseph cap, you know, catches up to his brothers, and from a distance, now they decide that they're going to kill him. Right? That's when they decide, we're, we're going to kill him. But his brother, which, do you recall which brother was the one that pleads for his life? It was Reuben. Reuben pleads for his life, and, he, and, and Reuben suggests that they throw him in the pit. So you have, uh, so you have this, indiv- this bottom level of these individuals that are involved in this narrative. So Reuben decides he's going he, to suggest that they throw him in the pit because he wants to come back and he wants to rescue Joseph, right? I mean, he wants to do, he wants to, you know, he wants to do the good thing. But you remember what happens next. So you have this caravan coming, and then the brothers decide, well, we're just going to sell him. Uh, to the Midianite traders, and they take Joseph to Egypt. So let, let's just look at the different stories. So at the, very, at the very bottom, you've got Joseph. His father sends him out to find the brothers. He comes across this stranger who comes out of nowhere. Uh, because of that chance meeting, he finds his brothers. Now, his brothers want to kill him. One intervenes. They throw him in the pit. And then when the caravan comes by, he's off to Egypt. So you think, what does Egypt, what does is, what is, what is the story of Joseph going into Egypt have to do with redemption history? Well, obviously, because Joseph was in Egypt, um, and the whole thing with Potiphar, and the gift that God had given him in interpreting dreams, uh, afterwards got him out of prison, and then found, he found favor with the Pharaoh, right, with Pharaoh. And because Pharaoh had uh, these dreams that he couldn't interpret, and Joseph, of course, had this gift, and he was able to interpret, hey, we're going to have seven years of you know, bounty and seven years of uh, famine. And uh, that prepared, you know, Pharaoh prepared, uh, had Joseph in charge of storing up all of the grain. And so when the famine did, in fact, come, he was allowed to bring his brothers and because he was allowed to bring his brothers, they didn't, uh, they didn't die of the famine, but God preserved them. And then while in Egypt, Egypt uh, you know, the, the, the Israelites grew in terms of population and number. And then, you know, and then we have the whole story. You know, it was like that's where how God preserved them. And then it got to the point where after you know, 400 years of abuse and you know, finally crying out, you know, God raised up. Of Moses, but what's what's interesting is, um, you know, this whole string of events that allowed Israel to really grow and multiply, and um, and eventually make it into the Promised Land. Uh, you know, almost started at least from this narrative with a with, with a question: What are you seeking? And so you see you see how all of these different levels you know, play in when we're looking at narrative, uh, narrative literature. Now, what's interesting is sometimes uh, in a narrative, within the, within, within the larger narrative, there are a shorter narratives that are kind of inter- interspersed. 
And you have uh, this called a compound narrative. And the reason, some of the reasons that the author, do, uh, the author includes some smaller narratives within, within the larger narrative is, is to make a theological point. So getting back to the Joseph story, in chapter 37, his story is being, is being told. And then in chapter 38, we have this kind of seemingly unrelated story of Joseph's brother, Judah. And in a very condensed version, Judah marries a Canaanite woman named Shua, right? So this is like right smack in the middle of the Joseph narratives. And, you, you know, you're kind of thinking like, like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, why, why is this story even there? Because after this story of Judah, they go back to the Joseph narrative. And so he, um, Judah marries this Canaanite woman, Shua. So she, she bears him three sons. So when the firstborn, uh, firstborn son is of age, Judah finds a wife for him. She's a Jewish woman named Tamar. But the firstborn is evil and wicked. And so if you read the story, so he's put to death by the Lord because they have no children. The second brother, you know, in Israeli custom, right, back then, if the, right, if the brother passes away and the other brother's unmarried, he's supposed to... And so that guy doesn't want to fulfill that obligation. Uh, so he was put to death by the Lord. And then Judah tells Tamar, he says, uh, go live with your father, just remain a widow, and when my youngest... Uh, grows up, you know, I'll send, him to, I'll send him to you and, you know, he can, you know, you guys get married and he can fulfill his obligations. Um, and so Judah believed that, you know, like the first two sons, he, he maybe assumed that his, his third would die prematurely as well. Um, but it's kind of doubtful that he intended to keep his promise to Tamar. But so that proved to be the case because what happens? The youngest son grows up, Judah never uh, fulfills his promise to Tamar. So even though she waited patiently for all those years, uh, he, still, he still didn't fulfill his promise. So what does Tamar do? Right? She, you recall that uh, she's told that Judah is in town, and she uh, takes off her mourning outfit, and she dresses up like a prostitute. He comes by, he sees her, his eyes pop out of his head, um, and he wants to sleep with her. She says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a goat. What will you give me in the meantime to ensure that I get the goat? He says, well, here, take my signet ring. Gives her the signet ring. Here's a cord of my road, my staff. Uh, she says, all right, it's a deal. She's off and running. Uh, so she changes back into her widow's outfit. So Judah returns with the goat, and Tamar's gone. Okay? You recall, she's, she's in the wind. Now, word gets out to Judah that Tamar's pregnant. And uh, people have been coming, and they've been telling him, hey, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. She's not married, and here she is, and she's pregnant. And so he says, bring her to me. We're going to burn her. Right? Nice, nice father-in-law. We're just going to torture. So sure. So they bring her. And you recall, she's, uh, she's calm. And she says, wait, before you burn me, let me tell you about the man who owns this particular signet ring and this cord and the staff because he's the father of my baby. And so, of course, Judah, you know, he's about to faint. And um, he says something interesting. He says in verse 26 that she is more righteous than I. 
Now, why would Judah say that? Why would he say that Tamar is more righteous than him? Well, if you look back into the, um, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, you find something interesting, right? Now, obviously, Jesus came from the line of Judah. But Judah had married a Canaanite woman. So if Tamar never slept with Judah, then you could have never known that Jesus came from the line uh, because, Ju- because, because Judas had a, had a Canaanite wife. And so Judah is someone uh, who is standing in the way of the Messiah coming. And, and Tamar, uh, realizing that, sleep, you know, sleeps with him, and then she has a son. And so Judah what is, is threatening the end of the Messianic line. But Tamar basically takes action to save it. And Judah, you know, recognizes his near-fatal mistake, and he calls her, you know, that she's more righteous than he is. And so in, in, in this story, another story, God wants to show that Judah uh, moves the, perp- God, the purposes of God forward. And even though, uh, even though Reuben, you know, you would think that, wow, you know, Reuben is really the hero because he's trying to save Joseph's life, uh, you can imagine that if, if Reuben was succeeded and came back and pulled Joseph out of the pit, they, what, what would have happened? I mean, they would have gone back home, and he would have never been sold into slavery. He would have never been into Egypt. When the famine came, you know, who knows what happened. And so you see there's this, this, um, this just interesting uh, story that uh, where God just uses uh, his purposes of fulfilled, and you have the biblical authors writing these narratives um, to, uh, to show that. In the gospel literature, we have um, in the gospel literature we have a lot of narratives. In the New Testament, um, one of the things, like I mentioned, is that what the author uh, includes in in the narratives is just as important as what he excludes. And so, the really quickly, it says the um, how many. Miracles? Do you suppose uh, that Jesus performed that performed that Jesus performed during the time of his active ministry? He 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 performed a lot of miracles, right? Not all of the miracles are recorded, but he did. We know he did perform a lot of miracles. Out of all of the miracles, there is only one pre-resurrection miracle that occurred that's recorded in all four Gospels. Does anybody? Venture a guess as to what that miracle would be. Only one pre-resurrection miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. I'll tell you. The feeding of the 5,000. 
So you think, okay, why is this so important that four gospel writers decided that they would include this in their material? I mean, this kind of seems like an unlikely candidate for a miracle of miracles that all four gospel writers would include. Um, But you would think that because all four included it, that there's got to be something significant about it. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, again, uh, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And I appreciate you letting me use your Bible here. And starting from verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is the Sea of the Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat there with his disciples. So why would uh, the author include that Jesus went up to the mountain. It says he went up to the mountain and sat with his disciples. Now, in the chapter before, Jesus is sparring with the, um, the Pharisees. He's sparring with the Jews in Jerusalem, and they were seeking to kill him because he, he, he healed on, on the Sabbath, thereby breaking the law. And he also had the gall to call uh, God his father. And they were basically basically understood what he was saying, that he and the father shared the same essence and that he, in fact, was affirming that he was God in the flesh. So they wanted to kill him. But at the end of that conversation, basically Jesus kind of pulls the theological rug from under their feet. And he... And he says to them, he says, uh, I won't accuse you before the Father. The very person you hang your hats on will accuse you. He says, uh, Moses. He said, Moses is the one that is going to accuse you. Moses, the one you have set your hope upon, will accuse you because he wrote of me. And if you believed him, then you would believe me. But if you do not believe his writings, then how will you believe me? And so Moses was... Their hero, their go-to guy. He was, and, and when Moses went up to the mountain, remember in the Old Testament, the disciples couldn't come. Right? Moses went up to the, when Moses went up to the mountain, he went up alone. But when Jesus goes up to the mountain, he's the one that brings us to where God is. And so Jesus is, in verse 4... It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But, th- but, this, um, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So that's a little curious. Why would Jesus test Philip? And Why would John point that out? Well, after the crossing of the sea in this section, which is uh, discussed in verse 16 to 21, Jesus explains the feeding of the 5,000. So he 
crosses the sea, and then he explains the feeding of the 5,000. And he says that he is the true bread. He's the true manna that came down from heaven in, in uh, verse 31, 6 verse 31. So our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so he is the true bread, he's the true manna that came down from heaven. Now, if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is in the wilderness and he says, uh, and God says, I, he says to the Israelites, I brought you into the wilderness and let you be hungry in order that I might test you to see if you would keep my commandments. And so here in the New Testament, with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is, is doing the same thing. Uh, people are hungry, testing Philip, and later on, he's connecting that with the manna. And so you have uh, the story of the crossing comes in between the feeding of the 5,000. So you have the feeding of the 5,000, you have the explanation of the feeding, and in between, you have the story of Jesus who's crossing to the other side of the land. And it's the, a picture of Jesus bringing, just as Moses brought, well, not Moses, but just as God brought people to cross the Jordan into the promised land, again, you have the same idea of uh, Jesus bringing the people into the promised land uh, because he is God and he is uh, Messiah. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a reenactment of, of what Joshua, Jehoshua, who was the man of faith, uh, bringing people into the land. So it's, it, it's really important that um, we, we understand and recognize the different genres of scriptures. And there are several resources that I can... Uh, commend to you to read. And when I took my Old Testament class, uh, my professor, just because we went through the different um, genres of scripture, it, it turned the scriptures from a black and white TV set into uh, HD color. Uh, when you begin to um, you know, study and understand uh, some of the unique ways in which the Semitic writers uh, and, and it just, you know, makes the word of God just come alive. So I really appreciate your time. Um, if there's any questions, I'll take questions. Would you agree that this genre, in particular hermeneutics, has become more in vogue today in our day and time than it was, say, 30, 40 years ago? that it's become more important to the church that it study her views and have an understanding. Would you agree with that? I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would agree with that. Right. Jeremy and I are right here in the same Bible college. I was there 65 to 70. We studied given term. But I don't know if we ever used the word hermeneutics at all. Yeah. And then he comes along, he's had a class, I'm sure, hermeneutics. So that makes it more important for our day. It was important in that, I'm not saying it was. But we see that this, this battle for the Bible and interpretation.
Yeah, I, I, think it, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is, uh, and, and part of that, I think, has to do with the fact that because of uh, archaeology, we have Ted Wright, right, who's, I mean, that's his field, uh, archaeology, and we've discovered that, like I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, that uh, the way the Semitic writers, the, Bible, the biblical writers, uh, you know, wrote the scriptures uh, is a, a very, very different from, you know, the Hellenistic way that we, we, the framework that we use. And when in the last 25, 30, 35 years, when they began to study that, hey, this was, you know, they have some really unique literary uh, devices that they employ, which are very different from what we're used to, um, then that gives us uh, added tools uh, for really understanding what is, because how they said it, you know, is just as important as what they said. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of seminaries, you know, well, in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, that's, and, and, and the other thing is, I think because we, th there was a big, um, back in the, in the 60s, you might recall, I mean, there was a big uh, battle over the Bible, right? I mean, Harold Linzel, you know, wrote that book because you had a lot of these um, professors that, you know, went out to Germany and, you know, studying under a lot of liberal uh, theologians and then they came back and kind of infected uh, a lot of seminaries and, and, you know, the inspiration of the scriptures, you know, all of these ideas that we uh, embrace were challenged. And uh, I think that was a big impetus for people to, uh, to engage in hermeneutics and, and um, you know, in the science of, of translation and stuff. You know. So, you see that? Yeah. What's your favorite genre? Uh, I love narrative. I, um, you know, I, I, I love narrative and I love... I mean, I, I enjoy the epistles. I mean, I, I like, you know, as an apologist, you know, you think logic, and, but uh, I enjoy preaching, and I think that stories really connect with people because, you know, Paul talks about, you know, when, when Paul argues in Ephesians, right, in the first three chapters, you know, he talks about, you know, um, you know how we should do it, and then the, the next three is how we do it, how we, you know, flesh it out theology. And when you read the narrative scriptures, I mean, that's, you know, you see that. I mean, everything is, uh, it's, it's in living color, which is an old term. I should just say HD. But, uh, I, you know, I think, I, I think narratives are things that people really identify with. Um, you know, they can see how, you know, God works through uh, his, you know, his people and how his purposes are fulfilled. And so, um, yeah, so I like narratives. Well, listen, I really appreciate you guys, your attention, and give me the opportunity to share with you this morning. Thank you. Or this afternoon.